0: chapter 25. We're looking here at Jacob and Esau. Remember, Rebecca was barren and Isaac prayed for her and she conceived and we learned that they were twins and we saw this prophecy of God concerning why they were struggling within Rebekah's womb and and now we're going to meet these two boys, Jacob and Esau. So I want to begin reading in verse 24. Excuse me. You can definitely feel my voice going, for which I hold Luke Lewis completely responsible. Let's begin reading in Genesis 25, verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. And thus Esau despised his birthright. Behind everything we're going to look at tonight is the sovereign purpose of God, because God has already declared to Rebekah what the future would hold Jacob is going to supplant Esau, and though Esau is the firstborn, it will be Jacob and his descendants who will have the greater blessing. Can you imagine what it must be like to give birth to children already having been told something of the future of those children? That's the situation Isaac and Rebekah are in. I don't know if it was because God had given Rebekah this prophecy, that that Jacob would be the blessed son, that that he became her favorite. Did she keep Jacob close to her even from the youngest ages because of that prophecy? Is is that why he did not become the, the man of the field that Esau did? We don't know. But our passage also seems to teach that Esau was born with a personality that preferred hunting, that preferred adventure. (coughs) Jacob was born as more of a plain child, one who preferred the simpler life of shepherding and staying near the tents. In verse 25, we are told that the first child came out red with all his body like a hairy cloak. So Esau was was ruddy. It's the same word used of David in, in 1 Samuel. Um, it's not mainly about the color of his hair, though he may have been red-haired, but we don't really know. It mainly has to do with the complexion of the skin. Uh, Esau had this, this ruddy complexion, a reddish complexion of the skin. Jonathan, would you go get me a Kleenex? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Otherwise, this could get gross. I feel it coming. Esau had a a condition, we think, called hypertrichosis. Hypertrichosis is a condition in which a baby is born covered in hair. And that seems to be the way Esau is described here, that he was born as as though his body was covered with a garment of, of hair. And so these qualities, a a ruddy complexion and hairiness, well, these were were qualities often found among boys who who were more masculine, more adventurous. They they tended to want to be warriors of sort or adventurers of sort. They they were men of action. They were men of adventure. And Isaac and Rebekah called this boy's name Esau. Now, some point out that his name is very similar to the Hebrew word Asa, which means to press to squeeze to crush and that name would make sense since the two boys had been crushing one another within rebecca's womb as we talked about before but the text tells us that esau was given that name because of his hairiness <laughs> Thank you. (laughs) All right, nobody look. (gasps) All right, thank you. The text tells us that Esau was given his name uh, because of his hairiness. And the word hairy in the Hebrew is this word Sear. And so it seems to be loosely connected to the name given to him, Esau. Later, Esau's descendants, the Edomites, are going to dwell in a land called Sear. And we actually think that that region was given that name because of Esau and because of his hairiness. So this is Esau. This is a a warrior. This is an adventurer. This is a a man of action. Thank you. Uh, In verse 26, we meet Jacob. Jacob comes out with his his hand grasping Esau's heel. This is why Isaac and Rebekah gave him the name Jacob, which literally means one who takes by the heel. It's a word used of someone seeking to supplant someone else. Esau was the firstborn. Esau was thereby entitled to greater rights and to greater blessings. Even from their birth, it appeared that Jacob was trying to take these away from Esau. Uh, The way Jacob was born almost seemed to indicate that he was trying to be the firstborn himself. It's almost as if the struggle within Rebekah's womb was a struggle over this very thing who was going to be the firstborn? Now, Obviously, these were babies, and they understood none of these things. But the struggle in Rebecca's womb and, and the way Jacob was born was a prophetic sign of the future that was going to come. Jacob would be a supplanter, one trying to gain greater blessing for himself at the expense of his brother. And so already at birth, we, we learn something about the, the character of these two boys. But then we begin to see them as young men. We kind of skip over the the childhood, and we come to verses 27 and 28. Verse 27 begins, When the boys grew up. By the way, that word boy is used elsewhere in Genesis to refer to a 14-year-old boy and in another passage to refer to a 17-year-old boy. So we would assume that now we're looking at Jacob and Esau as as young men, uh, as teenagers or, or perhaps early 20s. And so this is them fresh into adulthood. And immediately we see how different these two twin boys are from one another. Esau has become a skillful hunter. The word field, he was a man of the field. It really has in view not a farmer's field, but the open country. That is, Esau is a man who is happy to be away from home. He's happy to be a, away from the society of the settlement where they live. He, he tromps through open land on the hunt for new game. Jacob, on the other hand, is a, is a quiet man. He takes the simpler life he really is following more in the footsteps of his fathers, taking on the vocation of a shepherd, staying near the settlement. Some commentators give Jacob a, a really hard time here. They, they treat him as almost an effeminate man However, most commentators tell us that Jacob was simply being like his father, that he was continuing their shepherding lifestyle, a lifestyle of living in the tents and being at home, where Esau appears to have actually been the more unusual one. The picture here isn't of a a womanly Jacob, though he will be something of a mama's boy. We will see uh, certainly Rebecca's affection for him. But we will see later, for example, Jacob very willing to take a goat and to kill it and to clean it, and to do those sorts of things. And so I think some people have, have noticed that Jacob was cooking stew and have already have often assumed that he therefore must have been something of an effeminate man. And of course, that absolutely isn't the case. Uh, in fact, the words used to describe Jacob in verse 17 have very positive connotations in the Hebrew, while the words used to describe Esau have very negative connotations in the Hebrew. Esau is the wild-at-heart hunter. Jacob is the the quieter, the the simpler shepherd. Well, in verse 28, we learn of partiality within the family. Isaac preferred Esau. Why? Because he ate of his game. Esau hunted and brought home varieties of food that, that pleased his father. Esau reached Isaac's heart through his stomach. Meanwhile, Rebekah preferred Jacob. Maybe this was because of the prophecy. Maybe this was because of his simpler, quieter demeanor. This we know. This game of playing favorites with the two boys does not end well. This partiality leads to sin. We see this again and again with the patriarchs in the book of Genesis. Uh, Abraham seemed to have real care for his son Ishmael, but Isaac was Abraham's favorite son. And you think about even God telling Abraham, you know, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. There's this sense that Abraham had a special love for Isaac that that was reserved for him alone probably tied to the prophecies concerning Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah each have their favorite son. Later Jacob, when he gets older and has his own family, he's going to play favorites with his children. Genesis 37:3 says that Jacob loved his son Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. Remember how that turned out? Not good. Right? The other brothers get jealous. They, they sell Joseph into slavery. Parents playing favorites with their children typically has very negative effects on the family. In 1 Timothy, as Paul was giving instructions to Timothy about how to shepherd the church in Ephesus well, one of the things he tells him is this. He says, Timothy, do nothing from partiality. Timothy, as you manage the household of God, don't let there be any favoritism in the way you manage your household. And I would just say, if we shouldn't play favorites in the family of God, should we be playing favorites in in our own families? And I, I think probably not. That when it comes to how parents care for their children, when it comes to how fathers manage their households, they ought to do nothing out of partiality. If one child happens to be more like us than another, or to please us more than the other child, we must be on special guard, not to show favoritism, but to show equal love and to care for all our children. Our God is a God of justice, and partiality typically means being unjust, because you're being more lenient towards one person and more strict towards the other. It's not an even playing field. God instructed the leaders and the judges of Old Testament Israel. He said, "You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality." Deuteronomy 16:19. Fathers and mothers, you have authority over your children. And if you show one preferential treatment, you will tempt that child towards pride, and you will tempt your other children towards envy and towards hatred. Our God is the Father of us all. And our God is not a God of partiality. Romans 2.11, for God shows no partiality. Galatians 2.6, God shows no partiality. Ephesians 6.9, there is no partiality with Him. So let us learn from our Heavenly Father to treat all of our children, our grandchildren, our nephews, our nieces, and others with fairness. You don't let one get by with something and the others not get by with it. We're to treat all people with love and with kindness, with faithfulness, with, with care. And so Isaac and Rebecca's partiality is, is going to, to lead to great sin. and We should learn from them. We should learn from their errors so that we don't commit the same errors in our own lives. Well, as we come to verses 29 through 34, we have this episode that, that really sets the stage for all that's going to come. We, we begin to see the character of these two men. We see them in all their ugliness. Um, Brian, I think, mentioned to me yesterday that uh, years ago when he was reading this story, he, he was asking himself, which guy here is the good guy? And the answer is, there is no good guy here. Right? It's, it's very ugly. The, the character of both of these boys is ugly in this passage. Uh, verse 29 sets the scene. Once when Jacob was cooking stew... Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. So we we have Jacob cooking. The aroma of the cooking food is is, is coming from the pot. Esau has just come in from the countryside. Commentators tell us that, that it seems to indicate that he may have been away for several days on a hunt. And he's returned home, and he's weak, and he is famished. He uses this word exhausted, and that word is used elsewhere to speak of a traveler who is weak and weary from his travels. Verse 30. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. And therefore his name was called Edom. Now what's missing in the English translation that you have, probably, is that Esau actually says red stew twice. (laughs) Literally in the Hebrew, he says, let me eat some of that red stuff, that red stuff, for I am exhausted. And we've talked before about how when the Scriptures repeat something, uh, it's it's a way of emphasizing it, right? We've talked about how when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, He's he's emphasizing the truthfulness of what He's about to say. You can take it to the bank. This is an important principle. Listen. Listen. Talked about how the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy. The seraphim is right, they they use this trifecta of the word holy to describe the Lord of hosts. And the point isn't just that God is holy, but that he is very holy, that his holiness characterizes all that he is. Here, Esau does this, does this same technique of repeating the words twice to indicate how much he wants it, right? He, he, he sees the stew. He smells the stew. He's, he's hungry. His stomach is growling. and In his weariness, he, he sputters, let me drink some of that red stuff. The red stuff. I am famished. It's another translation. The emphasis is on the red stuff. He, he wants it so He's he's craving it. His his mouth is watering. His body is crying out for it. Now, the word Edom means red. And we're told that Esau became known as Edom. And his descendants throughout the rest of the, the Old Testament are known as the Edomites. And so that's where that name came from. Now, let's be clear. Esau is not really at the point of death. He's not. We're going to see that in a minute. He, he's going to eat a little bit and go on his way and he's going to be fine. Okay? So this was not this was not Jacob um, seeing Esau in utter distress, laying on the floor about to die. But he was probably truly very hungry. He's not at the point of death He may have been so hungry that he felt like he was at the point of death. Have you ever felt like that? Your your, your stomach is growling that bad, especially when you can smell it, right? Um, You think of chocolate chip cookies cooking in the oven and you can smell it and, and you begin to think, oh, I've got to have one. I've got to have one. Well, the aroma of the stew is teasing his senses. And Jacob chooses just this moment to try and get something that he has probably wanted for some time. He wants his brother's birthright. Look at verse 31. Verse 31, Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. This birthright refers to the special legal privileges that were given to the firstborn son. Later, when the nation of Israel is established, this will mean double inheritance. The firstborn son receives twice what the rest of the sons receive. It was also the firstborn son who became known as the head of the family once the father had passed away. And so it was a position both of wealth and a position of power. It was a position of esteem. We know from other ancient sources that the eldest son could sell his birthright if he chose. And that is what Jacob is proposing here. You say you're hungry, sell me your birthright. Smell it, sell me your birthright. Now, pressure's on, right? It's like a car salesman, right? The pressure's on. Now, this deal won't be here tomorrow. Look at how Esau responds in verse 32. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Oh, how short-sighted Esau is being. His father is Isaac, the son of Abraham. Jacob and Esau almost certainly knew their grandfather, Abraham. If, if our numbers are right, Abraham died when, when Jacob and Esau were around 15. So maybe right around the time of this event or a little before. You can imagine Abraham sitting down with his grandsons, sharing with them how God had promised to pour out special blessings upon their family. And we've talked about the, the, the height and the width and the depth of the promises of God to Abraham and his family. But in the midst of all that, great wealth, great material blessing had been promised by God to Abraham's family. So when Esau gives up his birthright, he is giving up great future wealth that was to be his. To trade that for a bowl of stew is very foolish. Esau's God at this moment is his belly. He is not thinking about the future. He is thinking about what he wants right now. He is caught up in a lust for this food. Long-term matters mean nothing to him. It's interesting, in Hebrews 12, 16, we read this. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. I think it's interesting that this account of Esau giving up something big and settling for something much smaller is tied in the book of Hebrews to sexual immorality. When a Christian man and woman are married, their, their wedding night and the days that are to follow, that, that's to be something big. They've saved themselves for each other, and they're going to experience something special together. It's meant to be a foretaste of heaven, as, as we heard this morning. But how often do people choose not to wait for that day? but to give themselves over into, into sexual immorality before marriage. They, they settle for something much lesser, something not nearly as special, and, and then they have to bring that baggage into, into a marriage, and, and it hinders the, the greatness of what they were supposed to have. Now, the grace of God is certainly able to bring help in those situations, but I think we need to see the comparison. That Esau was being led by his belly. Esau was being led by, by the desires of his flesh. And in this moment, it cost him big. If only Esau had learned self-control. If only Esau had learned patience in suffering. If only Esau had learned the practice of self-denial. He would have eaten soon enough. And he would have still had his birthright. This account is a warning for us. And it's a warning for us about the costs of sin. Our bodies will will tempt us not only towards maybe sexual immorality, but but also towards gluttony and towards laziness and towards sharp words. And and we must learn self-control. We must learn to use these bodies of ours for good in the service of Jesus Christ and not for wickedness. And so I would ask you, do you know what it is to be a person of self-control? Are you practicing self-control over your, your belly and your tongue and your pocketbook and your time? The holiest spirit of God lives inside of you. And you now have the power to say no to sin. By the grace of God, you have the power to say no to sin. Sin does not have authority over you anymore anymore. You have the ability to keep yourself in check. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. You are to give your body as a living sacrifice to Jesus Christ. And not out of sheer duty, but out of love and joy and faith you know that his ways are good and that his ways are right and that he loves you tremendously. And, and so for, for his sake and an unspeakable joy, we are, we are to work to be self-disciplined. We can't give ourselves to Jesus if we don't have control of ourselves. I can't give to Jesus what I don't have control of. If Esau had learned self-control, he would have spared himself so much misery later. I don't think it's by accident that when Paul is giving instructions to Titus in in the book of Titus about what to teach at the church there in Crete, and he's talking about what to teach the older women, what to teach the younger women, what to teach the older men, what to teach the younger men. In every one of those groups, he includes self-control, self-control, right? Self-control. Older men, be sure and tell them to be self-controlled. Older women, be sure and tell them, use moderation, be self-controlled. Be sure and tell the older women to teach the younger women to be self-controlled. Remember what he told them to tell the younger men? The only instruction he gave was teach the younger men to be self-controlled. And he doesn't say anything else about the younger men. That's how important self-control is in the Christian life. We ought to pray for it. We ought to pursue it. It will save us from so much pain. Self-control will make us useful to God. It will make us a blessing to others and it will lead us safely to heaven. And self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. So we must look to Jesus to give it to us and we should pursue it with all our might. Look at verse 33. Verse 33. Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Esau was a slave to his appetites, and he was very foolish. He recklessly made a solemn oath and sold his birthright. But what about Jacob? In my view, Jacob in this passage is even worse than Esau. What Esau did here was reckless. What what Esau does here is careless and foolish. But what Jacob is doing is preying on his brother's weakness. What Jacob is doing here is cold and calculating. He's taking advantage of his brother for his own personal gain. Jacob here is acting like Satan. Satan that great deceiver who looks for the right moment to bring certain temptations into our lives, working to turn our hearts away from Christ so that we would lose our inheritance in Him. Satan would love for us to turn against our Savior, to stop trusting Christ, to stop following Christ, to live again as slaves to our flesh. And so he looks for that moment when we we feel famished when we are spiritually weak in this area or in this area, and then, he, and then he seeks to hit us with a temptation that we can hardly resist. Oh, the deal is terrible to take this sin and to turn against Christ and to give up heaven and to give up the forgiveness of sins. I mean, the deal would be terrible, but boy, if Satan can get us to make that deal, he's going to try. If he can turn us again into living life our own way, into following our, ourselves as our own God, then He knows we will lose our salvation. We will, we will lose the birthright of the new birth, our, our inheritance in heaven. See, you, you do have a birthright, you know. You've been born again, and the new heavens and the new earth are yours. Christ is yours. And Satan would love for us to forsake that birthright. We should thank God that He has promised to us that Jesus will lose none of His children, that He protects us. If it was not for the protecting grace of Jesus Christ, we would give up the greatest thing we've ever been given. Isn't that amazing how foolish we can be? God has promised He will keep His people saved. He will keep them believing. He will keep them obeying. But friends, we have to live that out. (laughs) We have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We have to actually endure the temptations of Satan when our bodies cry out, Oh, if I don't do that sin, I'm going to die. Oh, I just want to say this so bad I'm going to die. Oh, I want to make that foolish spending decision so bad I'm going to die. I want that thing. And so we're faced with decision after decision after decision. And and if we continue walking down that path, we will prove ourselves not to belong to Jesus Christ because we will be submitting to our own fleshly appetites and not to His will. We, in the power given to us through Jesus must defeat temptations by saying no to fleshly appetites, practicing self-denial so that the greater thing, the better thing, the inheritance, will be ours. This is the Christian life. Is this the kind of life you're living? How is this playing out in your life? What what fleshly appetite seems to be regularly crying out? Are, are you having tongue troubles? I gotta say that thing. You having gluttony troubles? You, you cannot give to Christ what you do not own. If your body is out of your control, how are you going to present it to Christ as a living sacrifice? How are you going to bless others and live for Christ's glory? If you believe what Christ tells you is good and is right and is true, then take control of yourself and act upon it. Jacob is not a nice guy. He's a deceiver and a manipulator. And Esau, with his lack of self-control, was easy prey. Verse 34. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. There is no evidence here of immediate remorse. We don't see Esau take a bite and then immediately cry out, Oh, what have I done? No, he seems to leave untouched by what he's just done. He eats and he drinks and he goes his way. Later, we're going to see some regret. Right now, this birthright still means little to Esau. He's he's still living in the moment. He's not thinking about what he's just given up. He's not thinking about the future. He will begin to reap what he has sown. We will later see him indicate that he has made a very foolish choice here. In verse 34, Esau is a picture of unbelievers. They act each and every day in slavery to the desires of their flesh doing what they want to do with no regard for Christ or His will or His word, no regard for wisdom, and they don't realize what they're giving up by making the decisions they're making. They do not realize the heavy consequences of their actions. And yet one day they will. And so as we come away from this passage, what are some of the truths that should stick with us? I'm just going to mention three very briefly. First, we see in this passage that human beings can be deceptive, manipulative, and very foolish. Surprise! I hope that you see yourself in this passage. I hope that you can think of times in your own life when you've been like Esau, making really silly, foolish decisions because you were being led by by your flesh. I hope you can also think of those times in your life when you may have been deceitful, manipulative, taking advantage of of others for your own gain. If you see those things in yourself, then, then you should see why people like you and me need a Savior and why Jesus should be so precious to us. You see, Jesus Christ is the only human being who's never been like this. Jesus was the only human being who was not a slave to his appetites, nor has he ever desired anything that was not good and was not right. Christ has never desired anything in improper proportion. He is perfect and he is pure. Christ is never wicked or deceptive. He speaks the truth. He deals fairly and honestly with people. He acts justly in all that he does. Here is the only man who ever lived who was not like these two men we've been reading about. The only man who ever lived who was sinless. And he bore the punishment for all the times that you and I have been like Jacob and Esau. He paid the price for his bride, the church. So In Jesus, we have the forgiveness of our sins. What this means, though, is because we see it here and because we know what the Bible says about the depravity of man, it means we should not be surprised when we see people acting in these ways. How do you respond when you see someone who who you love and they're just being led here and there, to and fro, by by their different desires and appetites? How do you respond in those moments? Maybe you've known someone who... Um, just to give maybe a more extreme example, who, who is addicted to alcohol, and you've seen the way that, that alcoholism grips their life. They, they constantly desire it. They, they long for it. They're, they're led to it, and they make foolish decisions because of it. More normal, more common, is you know, we a uh, love for food, a love for um, power, a love for money, you know these things that our flesh desires, and, and if we don't learn to control ourselves, it gets us in real big trouble. When you see these things in yourself, when you see these things in other people, we shouldn't be shocked as if something new has happened, as if something strange is occurring. This is simply us acting in accordance with sinfulness, with our sinful natures. And what's needed is repentance. What's needed is is coming to Christ anew and presenting our lives before Him, pleading with Him to, to hasten that great work of, of sanctifying us. Folks, there will be times in this life when you realize that someone is using you. Does that ever happen? When you realize that you've been used, you've been taken advantage of. Have you ever been duped by someone for their gain? Don't be stunned that someone can be like this. Rather, remember that we are all inclined to such behavior. Let these things remind us of the grace of God and how amazing it is that God would love people like us. The astounding truth that that He is making us different. He is bringing us to a world where these things will no longer be. But as long as you and I are in this life, human beings will act deceitfully. Human beings will act manipulatively. Human beings will act foolishly. You just need to count on it. And you need to seek to be different by the grace of God. The second truth that I think we should come away from, this one's on the face of it, I think, is that God's Word proves true. God's Word proves true. We, we had the prophecy given to Rebecca, and already here it is unfolding. Right? God had said the older will serve the younger. It's the younger brother who will ultimately be the stronger one. It seems so unlikely. Right? It's the older son who, who was born hairy and ruddy, full of action and adventure. It's the younger one who's so plain and simple, so, so quiet. And already as young men, we see that the younger one has taken the birthright of the older one. Already, the second born son has supplanted the first born son and taken what was the first born son's and, and made it his. It's just another reminder that when God says something, you can count on it. It's true. And then, third and finally, I think we see here that God often chooses to be merciful to the unlikeliest of people. As I've said before, I think most of us would have chosen Esau over Jacob to be merciful to. I mean, as foolish as Esau has been, he is not as cold and calculating as Jacob. He's he's not the deceitful one. And we're just at the beginning. We're going to watch Jacob deceive and deceive and deceive in order to serve himself. We're going to see the wickedness of Jacob pile up before our eyes. And nevertheless, God is going to break into Jacob's life and Jacob's going to change. Jacob is not only going to be an ancestor of the Messiah, Jacob is going to be a true believer, a true child of God. In fact, I was thinking about it. Of all the characters in the book of Genesis, I don't think there's one that we see more change in than Jacob. Jacob is going to become a very different man by the grace of God. So why did God choose Jacob over Esau? Why take the non-adventurer, the quiet one, the plain one, the deceiver, the manipulator? Why take him and make him the believer? The only answer I can give is 1 Corinthians one 26 through 26-31. As I read these words, think about Jacob, think about you and me. Paul says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast. In the Lord. In other words, God often chooses the unlikeliest of people to make his children so that all that is done in them can be clearly seen to be of him. When we see a new Jacob begin to emerge, we will only be able to say, This is the work of God. And so must we say of one another and of ourselves. What an awesome God to take people like us and to change us. May God continue to change us more and more into the image of our Savior. Let's pray.